prayer together. Lord God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. We pray you do that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Well, church family, I thank God for you. It's so good to see you this morning, and I pray the Lord would make His face to shine upon you by opening your heart to His Word today. Students, I know you're tired, but you're not allowed to fall asleep. You've got to pay attention. I do give permission to those D-Now leaders to fall asleep. So if you're a leader, we thank God for you and all your work with the students this weekend. Let's turn together to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can probably find one of those hardback Bibles in the rack in front of you. It's on page 940 in that hardcover Bible. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture of your own, feel free to take that hardback cover Bible with you as a gift from us, from our church. We would be happy to provide a copy of God's Word for you. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Follow along as I read God's authoritative word over us. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth? You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written... The name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is, one, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the living God. May He, by the power of the Spirit, etch its truth on our hearts. Well, at the conclusion of this sermon, the response to this passage of God's Word will be to partake by faith of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbol. Now listen, it's not merely a symbol, but it is nonetheless a symbol. The Lord's Supper is a physical partaking 
that represents a spiritual reality. It's a physical partaking that represents a spiritual partaking. See, as we physically eat the bread and drink the cup, we are symbolizing what has happened and what is happening in our heart. That we are receiving and trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. We are declaring when we partake of these elements, we're proclaiming and declaring that we died to sin in the death of Jesus. And we have been made alive because of Jesus' resurrection. And we're declaring that all our hope is in the Gospel of Jesus Christ to make us right with God. Partaking of the Lord's Supper shows that outwardly. It's a physical act, an outward act that shows what's happening inwardly, spiritually. So let me state the obvious. It is possible to eat the bread and drink the cup and not be dead to sin and alive in Jesus. Like it's physically possible, I think, for every person in this room to take the bread and the cup. But it's possible to do that and the reality not be true of you. The spiritual reality. You can do the physical act without the inward faith. We all know this, right? You can participate in something and be 10,000 miles away from that thing spiritually and emotionally, right? We've all sung songs that we didn't mean. We've all sung words that we didn't in that moment believe or we didn't feel. And so the application today is going to be not just partake of the bread and the cup, but partake of the bread and the cup as a public, visible, physical representation of what's happening in your heart. That you're trusting in Jesus as your only hope of right standing with God. Well, this passage right here in Romans is teaching this very thing. It is possible to outwardly do all the right things and yet be inwardly, spiritually bankrupt. It's possible to look on the outside. It's possible to display to everyone else like you are obeying God. But God looks at the heart. Listen, this is one of the many very difficult sections to understand in the book of Romans. There's nothing easy about this whole section in the book of Romans. We've been trying to unpack it just a little bit at a time. And so let me just briefly get a running start here into this passage and, and try to summarize what Paul has said up until this point and so we can see what his point here is. Listen, Paul is captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is absolutely captivated. He says he is not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 16, because it is the power of God for salvation. That is, the gospel is the very power of God to bring about redemption and reconciliation and the particular way that the gospel saves, the particularly good news of the gospel is that it reveals the righteousness of God. Chapter 1, verse 17. That is, it reveals the way people can be declared right in God's sight. That's what Paul's talking about. But before he explains how God can do this, how God can declare sinners to be right with Him, he has to make clear that we are all unrighteous. We will never understand our need for the righteousness of God unless we understand how spiritually bankrupt we are in our depravity, in our sinfulness. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, 
Paul began explaining why the righteousness of God is being poured out, why the righteous wrath of God is being poured out. His wrath is being poured out because of the rampant unrighteousness of the pagan Gentiles. They exchange the glory of God for a lie, he says, and they worship created things instead of their Creator who is forever blessed. God has revealed Himself to every single person, and yet every person has turned away from God to idolatry and immorality. And the Jewish people reading that up to chapter 1, they were tracking along with Paul saying, that's right, that's right, amen. Those Gentiles are worthless. They deserve God's wrath coming to them for all of their wickedness. Paul knows that the Jews would totally dismiss the wrath of God against their own sin and idolatry and assume that they were the special chosen people of God who don't have to worry about being given over to their sin by God. After all, they have God's law, right? They have God's promises in the covenants. God wouldn't give them over to their sin. Or so they thought. Paul turns in chapter 2, verse 1 and says, You're just as guilty as the Gentiles. They were doing the very same things that the Gentiles were, only they should have doubly known better. They were, he says in chapter 2, verse 4, presuming upon the kindness of God. Chapter 2, verse 5, they were storing up wrath for themselves for the day of wrath. And Paul makes sure they know. Paul makes sure it is clear that they know God shows no favoritism when it comes to His judgment. He will not overlook their rebellion just because they are Jews and have the law and have circumcision. And listen, Paul's point is not to be anti-Jew. After all, Paul himself was a Jew. Paul's point is to show them that they too were infected with the disease of sin and needed the righteousness of God just as much as anyone else. Paul knew what Jesus Himself taught, that it is not the well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And the problem, the problem in first century Rome and the problem in 21st century America is that we assume we're well. We don't know our sickness. The Jews thought they were well, but they were actually sick. And they need to understand just how sinful and self-righteous and hypocritical and ritualistic and prideful they were before they could ever embrace the perfect righteousness of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And so in chapter 2, verse 17... Paul continues exposing the hypocrisy of his fellow Jews in order to show them that only the Gospel can save them. That only the Gospel has the power to save them. They need a Savior, and so do we all. That's the point of this section. We need the righteousness of God, but all of us are unrighteous. Now, it would be tempting for us to write this passage off today as a passage that doesn't really speak to us, doesn't really address us. After all, we aren't Jews. We don't trust in the law. We don't trust in circumcision. And that's true. We have to recognize the historical circumstances and the uniqueness of the situation that Paul is writing to in Rome. However, recognizing that, I think we can very much apply the principles of this passage to our own lives today. 
Because we also have hypocrisy and pride in our relationship with God. In fact, I think this passage is very applicable to the ordinary, average, church-going Gentile in America and around the world today. Because we are tempted with the very same idols that the Jews of the first century were mesmerized by. We are plagued with the very same idols. And so as we move through this passage and seek to understand what Paul is saying, we're going to be making application to our own hearts, all in preparation to receive by faith the broken body and poured out blood of our spotless Savior. And so let's dive into the passage. I want to highlight three rebukes in this passage for us. Three rebukes that Paul gives that we can apply to ourselves. Number one, you don't practice what you preach. You don't practice what you preach. So in verses 17 through 20, notice Paul lists at least six specific things that the Jews were boasting in that they had. Privileges and experiences that they were placing their trust in. Notice them. First, he says, they called themselves Jews. This was a prestigious designation that identified them as the special people of God. And notice the subtle rebuke of Paul in verse 17. He says, you call yourself a Jew. They would have responded, what do you mean call ourselves a Jew? That's who we are. You can't question that we are Jews. But that's exactly what Paul is about to do. He's about to tell them they aren't really Jews. Maybe to feel the force of this a little bit more, we could substitute maybe church-going Christian for Jews here. You call yourself a faithful Christian, do you? Is that what you call yourself, Paul says? Secondly, they relied on the law. It seems like Paul's saying they relied on the law in a negative way. That is, they didn't do what the law said, but rather they just boasted that they possessed the law and others didn't. Look how special we are. We have the law. Y'all don't. Third, they bragged about their relationship with God. Again, in a negative way, this means their relationship with God didn't create humility and gentleness and gratefulness, but rather they bragged about how special they were, and that gave them an opportunity to look down on others. Ever known people who seem really spiritually mature that just always make you feel like you're not quite as good as them? You're not quite as mature as them. That's never what spiritual maturity is supposed to create. Spiritual maturity is supposed to create humility and and identifying with others who aren't as far along with. But they were boasting that they were so spiritual. They were boasting that they were so mature in their relationship with God. Fourth, notice, they knew God's will because they were taught by the law. Verse 18 says, they know God's will and approve what is excellent because they were educated by the law. They were taking comfort in the fact that they had this special knowledge and could tell right from wrong. They were very moral on the outside. It looked like they had all the right answers. Fifth, they were a guide to the blind. Verse 19 is another subtle rebuke. They were so sure that they were a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. But Paul is about to say the exact opposite is the effect of their lives. The name of God was being blasphemed because of their hypocrisy and because of their pride. That's a scary thought, is it not? That we could be living 
sure that we are being helpful and being used by God only to find out that we're actually being a hindrance, dishonoring the name of God? That's a scary thought. Six, they were teachers of the ignorant and children. Notice verse 20 says, they loved to spread their knowledge to the foolish. They, they boasted in the fact that they were willing to teach children in a day when children were often neglected. They were teaching the ignorant and children. And so imagine, imagine if I had began this sermon saying something like this. Imagine if I said, so, you call yourself a Jesus follower, do you? And you're sure you're right with God because you signed a commitment card. You walked down the aisle. You prayed that sinner's prayer. Oh, and you, you, you're so committed to God that you're willing to be baptized and you joined the right church. You didn't join that, that, that false church over there. You joined the right church. You know all the answers. You serve in the nursery. You work with children. You serve on the committees. You know your Bible. You have Bible study. You attend church. You give. You went to the, the D now. You do all the, the stuff. You, you know all the right teachers. You don't, you don't deal with those, those ugly teachers over there. You know the right teachers. You read the right books. You listen to the right music. You call yourself a, a, a faithful Jesus follower, do you? You would wonder what I'm about to say, would you? If I, if I led with that, you would wonder what, what rebuke was coming. Well, notice how Paul sets the Jews up here. He's listed all these ways that they're trusting in themselves. He's listed all these things they would have viewed as good things about themselves. And then notice what he says in verses 21 and 22. You then, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Verse 22. Oh, why are you preach against stealing? Do you not steal? Verse 22. You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? So Paul says they don't practice what they preach. They're happy to tell others what they should be doing and how they should be living, but they do the exact opposite. You see, they're trying to be a light in the darkness, but there's no battery in their flashlight. Paul is revealing the religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness of the Jews. I think actually, here's a little side note. I think this rebuke helps us make sense of what James meant when he said that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who preach and teach will not just be judged based on the content of their teaching, but how their lives match with what they taught. Now, I know how some of your minds work because mine works in the same way. And so let me just say this. That's not an argument against teaching and preaching. Right? I can see some of you say, well, if that's true, then I'm just not going to teach anything and then I can do what I want and not have to worry about being a hypocrite. Well, the problem with that mentality is we're called to instruct others. In fact, the Great Commission says that all disciples are called to be disciple makers. All Christians are called to be teachers, teaching the nations what Jesus has taught us. See, teachers have to teach truths that they themselves have not fully mastered. They have to preach against sins that they don't have final victory over. 
We all have indwelling sin that makes us capable of falling into the grossest, into all manner of sin. But the non-hypocritical teacher recognizes that and never makes it seem like he doesn't need to listen to his own teaching. See, the best preachers and teachers are the ones who submit themselves to the same truths and instructions they teach to others. Friends, I just want to let you know I feel this deeply. I feel this deeply. I'm called to preach against idolatry knowing that I'm still an idolater. I'm called to preach against pride knowing that I'm a proud man. I'm called to preach generosity knowing that I still need God to free me from my sinful selfishness. And this is why we are so desperate for the Gospel. Because none of us has arrived. None of us can stand here and say, look at me, I do it perfectly. I'm the keeper of the law. Friends, none of us has arrived and none of us can boast that we are the enlightened ones who have it all together and who no longer sin. None of us can trust in any of our privileges or experiences or good works to make us right with God or to make us the perfect teacher. Friends, every day of the Christian life is a fight to practice what we believe and what we teach. And thus, every day is an opportunity for repentance and faith. Paul says you don't practice what you preach. Does this rebuke hit home for you this morning? Do you talk a good game, but you don't actually ever get in the game? Do you speak publicly against the very sins that you commit privately? Maybe a few diagnostic questions will be helpful before we moved on to the the second rebuke. Ask yourself a few of these questions as you evaluate your own self. Do you feel spiritually superior to others because of the privileges and experiences you have? Does your maturity in Christ make you feel superior? That's not actually spiritual maturity. Do you look down on others because they don't have the same opinions, convictions that you have? Does this make you cold and condemning to others? That's the opposite of practicing what you preach. How shall we preach the grace of Christ and not extend grace to others who disagree with us on non-essential things? Are you cold to God's Word? Like, do you seldom make changes in your own life Seldom see how God's Word convicts you and makes demands on you. Like, like, do you see clearly how God's Word applies to others? Seldom see how it's changing you. It's easy to say, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Man, I wish so-and-so could, could hear this. Well, what about what God is saying to you? That's the first rebuke. You don't practice what you preach. Here's the second rebuke Paul gives. You, you dishonor the name of God. You dishonor the name of God. And we'll we'll do this one fairly quickly. It's there in verses 23 and 24. Do you see it? Here's the devastating result of hypocrisy. The devastating result of our self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Here's the result of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy dishonors God and causes His name to be blasphemed. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 24, because of you. The name of God is blasphemed because of you. God is dishonored because of you. This is a crushing rebuke. You say you boast in God. You say you're His special people, but you actually bring great shame upon your God. When we boast in our own godliness without actually obeying God, we are the only people who can't see the result of our hypocrisy. Hypocrites can't see clearly. They're blinded by their own self-righteousness. They claim to be light, but they're actually spreading great darkness. Friends, a life of moralism, doing goodism, without the transforming power of the gospel, only makes our God less attractive to a world that sees right through our hypocrisy. Trying to obey God in our own strength, with our, with our own desires, apart from the transforming work of His Spirit, only dishonors our God. And they see through our religiosity. They see through it. And that's why we need rebuke number three. You need to be transformed inwardly. Paul says you need to be transformed inwardly. I need to be transformed inwardly. So beginning in verse 25, Paul moves to talking about the value of circumcision. So God had commanded all male Jews to be circumcised as a reminder of His covenant with His people. Circumcision had become part of the cultural identity of the Jews. It was an outward sign marking them out as the people of the covenant. And as Paul turns to discussing what true circumcision means, he is going to knock down the last leg of the stool the Jews were trying to stand on. They were trusting in circumcision to make them right with God. They believed they had special access to God because they were circumcised. And Paul knocks this refuge down. He says physical circumcision means nothing to a person who does not obey God. What matters to God is spiritual circumcision, he says. Notice verse 25. Paul basically says that if one is a lawbreaker, circumcision is worthless. It's foolish to trust in an outward sign when there's no inward obedience. The outward sign means nothing if it doesn't signify what actually is true in the heart. And then look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says, even someone who's uncircumcised can be considered circumcised by obeying the law. In other words, heart obedience is what matters, not some outward ritual. And so what matters is not the physical sign primarily, but the inward reality which the sign points to. Consider baptism as an illustration. Now, I hate even bringing... I tried hard not to bring baptism up this morning because I think people mistakenly tie baptism and circumcision too tightly together. I'm not doing that. But I think this is a great contemporary illustration for us of what Paul is saying here. He is saying, take this in, it would be better to be an unbaptized believer than to be a baptized unbeliever. Does that make sense to you? 
Now listen, in no way am I dismissing the importance of baptism. If you believe in Jesus and you want to follow Jesus as your Lord, when it's the appropriate time, you should get baptized because Jesus commanded it. But baptism is only for believers because otherwise the outward sign makes no sense. It makes no sense to be baptized if you haven't been regenerated, transformed inwardly. Baptism is supposed to picture what's happened to us spiritually, that we've died to sin and been raised with Christ. And Paul is asking, which is better? Which is better, to have the physical sign or to have the spiritual reality? And obviously the answer is that it's better to have the spiritual reality. But that's not what the Jews thought. They trusted in the sign without the inward reality. And so look at Paul's conclusion in verses 28 and 29. This is shocking. Paul says, For, here's his conclusion, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. What? What? No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor, he says, is circumcision outward and physical, but, verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, I'm assuming this would have infuriated the self-righteous Jews. Paul is saying to be Jewish has nothing to do with where you were born or what family you were born into or your nationality or your circumcision. Paul is saying a true Jew is one who has been circumcised of the heart. Notice how one is circumcised of the heart here. How how does one get circumcised of the heart and become a true Jew according to Paul? Paul says, by the Spirit, not by the letter. The inward transformation that we all need to truly be the people of God is not something that we can do on our own. I think that's what Paul means by not by the letter. That is not by the letter of the law or by our own efforts. It's not by law keeping in our own strength. But rather, this inward transformation is the work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again inwardly to this living hope. It is a sovereign and supernatural work of God to be spiritually born of God, to be spiritually circumcised by God. And so the command to be circumcised of heart is the same command as the command to be born again from John chapter 3. And neither of those can we do on our own. You can't make yourself be born again and you can't circumcise your heart on your own. You see what Paul is pointing at? He's going to address this later in the book of Romans in more detail. But here he's pointing to the fact that outward rituals and signs are powerless to save. There is no power in the outward act without the inward reality. Circumcision or law-keeping was never meant to carry power to make someone a child of God. However, with the work of Jesus, we've been given the Spirit of God to transform us 
from the inside. We no longer have to try to keep the whole law by our own effort because no one can do that. But we are made alive by the Spirit of God so that we can actually obey God. Now, someone's captured this in a little poem. I've shared this before, and I'm positive I'm going to share it again because it is so helpful to me. Someone put it in a poem form like this. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law commands us to do, but it doesn't give us the ability to do it. But the gospel comes with better news because what does it do? It bids us fly and it gives us wings. Circumcision is an outward sign. It cannot save. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper is an outward physical sign. Merely partaking of the Lord's Supper or being baptized or joining a church has no power to transform us. The Spirit must change our hearts and transform us into the people of God who obey from the heart. That's what the prophets of God said God would do in the New Covenant. That He would give us not just commands, but He would give us power to obey those commands. He would remove from us the heart of stone and He would replace it with a soft heart of flesh. He would give us the gospel that would make demands on our lives. You see, the gospel makes incredible demands on our lives. The gospel calls us to take up our cross and follow Him daily. But it also gives us the power to do what God has commanded. The gospel calls us to obey and gives us the power and the willingness to obey God so that we don't live for the praise of man. Verse 29, because man can only see the outward. Man can only see the physical. But rather we live for the praise of the God who looks on the heart. Have you been born again by the power of the Spirit of God? Do you have this inner transformation that Paul is speaking about here? Or do you just have the outward signs that make everyone think you're following Jesus, that make everyone think that you're doing all the right things, but in reality, there's no life, there's no power of the gospel to transform. If that's you, I plead with you, cry out to God in this moment. Cry out to Him. He can save you. His power is enough to save you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what family you grew up in, the power of the gospel is enough to transform you and your heart. So as we move to the Lord's table, I urge you to look past the physical sign to the spiritual reality. Let me encourage you to respond to God's word this morning like this. First, repent of the ways you don't practice what you preach. Repentance means to turn away from. It means to turn away from what's wrong and turn to what is right, that is, to Christ. Turn away from the ways that you don't practice what you preach. Acknowledge your hypocrisy this morning. Secondly, repent of the ways you've dishonored the name of God. Recognize that you've brought dishonor to the name of your Creator. And third, repent of the ways that you've trusted in external manifestations of godliness while neglecting the inward work of the Spirit.
See, the Lord's Supper is a physical partaking that symbolizes a spiritual partaking. Like, so don't just eat the bread and drink the cup, but receive the power of Jesus, the power of the Spirit and the Gospel to transform you from the inside out. And so let me be very clear. If you're not a Christian here, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if He isn't your Lord, if you're not willing to follow Him in all that He calls you to, please do not partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul would say, not only is it meaningless to partake of the sign without the reality, but Paul would actually say in 1 Corinthians 11 that you would be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You've not been inwardly transformed. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus, take this time to cry out to Him to save you by the power of the Spirit, but do not partake of these elements. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are relying on Him alone, none of your works to save you, but all of what He's done, then we invite you with the voice of the Lord Jesus, do this in remembrance of Me. Remember Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Enjoy Jesus through the Lord's Supper this morning. So Mike and the team are going to come and lead us in a song of reflection, a song of self-examination. And so we're going to take this time as the elements are going to be passed out among us to reflect on what we've heard from God's Word, to reflect on how we need to respond, and to cry out to God to transform us from the inside out. So the guys who are going to serve the Lord's Supper, go ahead and come. Just one minor detail. As these trays are being passed around, you'll notice that these are double stacked, which means the bread is in the bottom cup and the juice is in the top cup. So you're going to take one of those stacks And then you may need to place that juice in the holder, in the rack in front of you. If you you don't want to try to juggle it through this, we'll partake of the bread first. And so just FYI, if you you don't want to have to juggle it in several different hands, you can set it down in that rack in front of you. And so let's cry out to God for His mercy as we prepare to partake of the Savior's dying love for us.